This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Nightmares and Dreamscapes, a Stephen King adaptation podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined, as always, by Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. Hey, Joe. It's been a while since we've uh, brought this uh, Stephen King thing back, but uh, <laughs> we have a, a new film to talk about. But before we do, I have, a, I, have a, I have a joke for you. Ooh, I love a joke. Did you hear about the ambitious starlet who had no clue? I did not. She slept with a screenwriter. <laughs> that's the that's the joke that is at the center of this movie at one point, where the character in this movie, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, talks about a joke that is too dirty to put in a letter, and he wants our protagonist to Google Starlet and screenwriter, and that's the joke that comes up. So I, I had to I had to share that with you. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, kind of embodying the entire enterprise in one fell swoop for me, Terry. So yes, folks, we are talking about Mr. Harrigan's phone. This is the Netflix film adaptation of the Stephen King short story of the same name, which is from one of his recent anthologies, If It Bleeds. And Terry, had you read the short story that this is based on? I have not. I don't necessarily seek out King's uh, short stories that often. I prefer his work when it's a little bit more meaty and long. And I know, I think okay. this this book in particular is um, four, is it four novellas or something like that? So they're a little longer than, than a typical short story. But mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I don't know. I have a hard time getting into his short stories, which I think we'll probably <laughs> see why in this adaptation. Right. Yeah. So I managed to get this out from the library and read about three quarters of it before Mm -hmm. I ended up having to return it because it uh, ended up coinciding with a recent vacation I was on. So um, I had a good idea about whether this was a faithful adaptation, at least for the most part. And I can say that it is. So this is written and directed by John Lee Hancock. And he's working with as you've hinted, a bit of a thin premise. So it concerns a boy who's growing up in a small town. He ends up reading to the eccentric millionaire who is very lonely. They form a bond. And then when the millionaire billionaire guy dies, Mr. Harrigan leaves this boy a fairly substantial amount of money, as well as a tenuous ghostly cell phone connection, which seems to do the boy's will when he encounters bullies or people that he wants to exact revenge on. And I feel like my big problem is that it feels like there's two stories here. Like one is this sort of stand by me, uh, Stephen King story about the relationship between the boy and the old man. And it feels really heartwarming and down to earth. And then we've also got this ghostly revenge thing going on in the back half. And I don't feel like the two speak to each other well. No, in fact, I, I had to laugh because I also wrote on here that this movie feels one part like Monkey's Paw and mm-hmm. one part Stand By Me, where it's yes, a sort of exactly. a coming of age meeting with death kind of thing that is set up in like Stand By Me and mm-hmm. the idea that like, you know, the death of innocence and realizing, you know, place in the world. Right. And then there's also worries of wish fulfillment. I mean, 
it's pretty telling that the movie opens with that Oscar Wilde quote about when gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Like that mm-hmm. right there is is setting the stage for what we're going to explore in this film. But yes, I I was surprised at how long it takes to get to the supernatural element because most of this movie <laughs> is kind of a sentimental, melancholic look back at this unlikely friendship between mm-hmm. a poor boy and a very rich man. Yeah, and I'll confess one of my big issues, apart from the fact that it seems like it's two different stories meshed together, is that this isn't particularly exciting. So it is definitely being sold as a horror film. I think that's a huge mistake. There's going to be a lot of people who go in with unrealistic expectations about what this is going to deliver. It's not very exciting. And considering that this thing is like an hour and 45 minutes, I think it really overstays its welcome. Uh Yes. <laughs> yes, that is that is um that is an understatement for sure in my opinion. I gosh, I I think the problem, well I think there's multiple problems. One okay. I want to stick with is this is the plot. So mm-hmm. most of the movie is based on this relationship between Craig who's mm-hmm. played by Jaden Martell. Martell from another Stephen King adaptation and then mm-hmm. also Donald Sutherland's uh Mr. Harrigan. And even though the movie spends, I think Mr. Harrigan dies about 50, 40 to 50 minutes into the film. Yeah, I think it's like 42, 43. Yeah. I feel like we don't really get to understand either characters. The most like emotion and the most inner turmoil that we see comes from Donald Sutherland's wet eyes. Mm-hmm. A lot of wet eyes. <laughs> There's a lot of wet eyes in this, a lot of eye acting. Uh, yes. But there's like there's a sense of loss and humanity that's hidden behind this idea of this very ruthless businessman. But I don't feel like the film really digs into that enough. It's just, it's very mm-hmm. um, lacking in depth, I would say. Yeah, which is really strange because as you cued us to, this is based on a novella. So it's not like there's a huge amount of character development to pull in from the short story. But you do get a better insight into Mr. Harrigan's past. So he was a ruthless entrepreneur. And it's part of the reason why he doesn't want to be involved in local community. It's why he settled in this sort of small, sleepy town away from things like New York and the Stock Exchange and the other stuff that we see he's interested in. But in the short story, you very much understand that he stepped on the backs of other people to get to Mm. where he was. Like, he was absolutely cutthroat. So it makes sense when he says something about, you know, if you need to get rid of your enemies, do it quickly, do it ruthlessly, don't hesitate, and so on. Whereas in the film, you get a slight little glimmer of that, but it feels like that threat, that promise he makes Craig say, you know, destroy your enemies and don't hesitate, it feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I... I think this is a problem that a lot of people have when they try to adapt King's work because there's a lot of interior monologues and a lot of interior stuff that is done mm-hmm. in the character work because we get to be in the character's heads in the short right. story or the novel. And that's harder to portray on film, I would say, in particular. And I, I feel like a lot of times we get people that understand the surface level story. So the dialogue might be right. The mm-hmm. the way that characters speak, the things that are saying might tie directly back to the story, but without having that interior monologue to see the rich life that's happening behind the scenes, it mm-hmm. feels a little flimsy. 
Yeah, and it's so funny that you say that because this film clearly does not trust the actor who's playing young Craig, so that would be Colin O'Brien, for about the first maybe 20 to 25 minutes we have this young Craig version and it's all voiceover. It's like, does this actor even know how to do dialogue? Because the movie does not trust him to do it. So we have Jaden Martell providing voiceover. And then when it switches to Martell actually appearing on screen, the voiceover almost completely disappears as though suddenly we're going to be getting or understanding all of these things about this character. But you're right, I feel like I barely know who he is. You know, we know surface level stuff. He lost his mom. It's just him and his dad. His dad works at the used car lot. Uh, He's being bullied at school. But it's like, it's all the kind of Stephen King checklist tropey stuff. And yeah, like the film uses it as a substitute for real character development. And there's nothing beneath the surface. <laughs> there's nothing beneath the surface. And I felt that way about some of the other characters. I know I, I messaged you offline about there's a there's a girl, Regina, that Craig is interested in and they start oh. texting back and forth Who on. Could care? But like, <laughs> I, right. Nothing comes of it. <laughs> No, she doesn't even get a line until like halfway through the movie when she, I think the, I honestly believe the first line that she speaks out loud is, I need mm-hmm. to use the restroom. <laughs> and we are like an hour into this movie and that is the first time she speaks. I mean, this movie has no interest in female characters. No. I mean, you could argue it's really a, a two-hander, right? It's basically 90% Craig with 10% Mr. Harrigan, and then there's a couple of supporting characters. But it is hilarious how the women are treated in this text. Yeah, he's got the girl he's interested in. He's got the friend at school who wanders around in that sort of cafeteria-level primer where it's like, those are the burnouts. Don't talk to those people. Don't go in that room. She just looks scared and confused, and I'm not even sure if we ever see that character again. (laughs) She she shows up where there's like a Sadie Hawkins-style dance, and he's really hoping that Eugene is going to ask him. He's like, well, I know that X, I don't even know what her name is, his his silent friend who, again, I don't think says a single line in this entire movie, is mm-hmm. like, I'm pretty sure she wants to ask me, but I really want Regina to ask me. And that is literally the only point of that one character. And we have his male friend, U-Boat, who does get to speak a little bit. But first of mm-hmm. all, U-Boat? And what oh is God. his story? Like, all these characters no. really... If this is a two-person play or a two-person story between Craig and Mr. Harrigan, these other characters should show different sides of him, and we don't get that from that. Right. None of these characters serve any plot point other than Mm-mm. being there and to pad out the time, it feels like, because there's nothing we get from them. And that was so frustrating to me. Yeah, it's really, really weird, because as we move into the back half, we completely leave these characters behind right like we really Mm -hmm. want to focus on the bullying that craig is suffering at the hands of kenny yankovic and you know he's the person who craig inadvertently first murders via mr harrigan's cell phone and then craig just fucks off to college (laughs) grows up Uh, they don't do a very good job of aging Jaden Martell up. So I think they style his hair slightly differently to cue us to the fact that he's gone from like 15 to 19. He's apparently working as a newspaper reporter. And then, yeah, he ends up coming back because his beloved teacher, Miss Hart, who's played by the always fantabulous Kirby Howell Baptiste, who also gets nothing to do in this movie, has been unceremoniously killed by a drunk driver. And that's when we get our second ghostly murder 
and none of it lands like this movie should at least be emotionally resonant because we're spending so much time with craig and yet i don't feel anything for him or his journey throughout this entire movie no it's really toothless uh unfortunately in that regard and I don't know what to think about poor Kirby Howell Baptiste's character because mm-hmm. there's one moment like she all she gets to do is basically react to Craig not wanting to turn on this bully for mm-hmm. very nebulous reasons. Right. And her one big moment to shine is where she is literally like dabbing his mouth and like cleaning up after him getting beaten up and he says mm-hmm. that she smells good, which was <laughs> That whole scene was so fucking creepy. And I get that the whole point of it is to set up that there's the soap that she likes. Mm-hmm. That the, and that's the soap that the dude chokes on. So there's like a nope. connection there. It's but gross. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, is he going to kiss her? Because they're so close. And I was like, this oh. is uncomfortable. Uh-huh. He's got better chemistry with her than he does with the girl that he likes, who they just sit across from each other and type and text on their iPhones <laughs> the entire movie. Because this movie is brought to you by iPhones. Oh, my God. The amount of, like, Apple-ness of this movie was was killing me. Because mm-hmm. it's when we, find, <laughs> when we first get to have Jaden Martell's character, when he's finally playing Craig, it's 2008. The new iPhone has just come out. And all of a sudden, the school is separated into who has cell phones and which cell phone they have at, mm-hmm. at lunch. And the only reason he gets into the popular group is because he manages to get an iPhone. Like, it's weird. Mm-hmm. I don't... That's weird. <laughs> It is. And I will confess, I mean, there was definitely a segregation when I was going to school around like who had a phone and who had which type of phone. But it wasn't so it wasn't so concrete. (laughs) And it didn't mean that you could go and sit at a random table of people you had never spoken to just because you had a certain type of phone. Like it doesn't mean that you have anything in common with those people. And he's also, I think, meant to be at least a grade or two younger than those other kids. And I was just like, Oh, you'd get your ass handed to you. Oh, absolutely. They'd be like, who do you think you are? Like, I just, yeah, I don't know. It's just a lot of this movie, unfortunately, (laughs) did not work for me. And I, the other problem, I believe, is probably the creative team behind this. Because it's very confused, I would say, Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, who's involved with this. So you mentioned writer and director John Lee Hancock, who, of course, is most known for The Blind Side. Yeah. And Saving Mr. Banks. Mm-hmm. and the rookie yeah like folks if if you don't know these movies the blind side is an inspirational sports movie for which sandra bullock won her oscar but it's very much like white savior the movie white savior. Mm-hmm. and then i think the rookie is an underdog football movie or maybe baseball it's under it, it's it's definitely underdog sports movie i don't know which one. there we go yeah and then saving mr banks is the uh, disney one right yeah yeah, like these are all faux inspirational feel good movies. So I think that's part of the reason why I'm confused as to why the emotional components of Mr. Harrigan's phone doesn't work, because this dude should at least know how to pull on the heartstrings because he's made an entire career of it. You would think so. That is my, my first point of confusion. And then you have like the cinematographer, John Schwartzman, who's known for Pearl Harbor, Seabiscuit, mm. Armageddon. Jurassic World Dominion, Hmm. the Fifty Shades sequels, 
<laughs> and his look of the film, I, I don't know if this like this this bothered me a whole lot, and I don't know if maybe this is just a sticking point for me or not, but the film feels very nostalgic, but it feels like yes. 50s or 80s nostalgia. Like a hundred percent. Other yes. than the fact they have like technology in their hands, I'm like, this feels mm-hmm. like I should be watching a movie from the 50s or the 80s. Yeah, and and that was a surprise to me too. I can't quite recall when the book is set, but it's in the very early days because uh, one of the big distinctions is that when Craig ends up giving Mr. Harrigan the phone and then he dies, he ultimately leaves him a bunch of money, but he tells him that he should invest it in certain kinds of products. And the estate manager guy ends up saying, well, okay, if you want to put it into certain places, we can. But what I'm going to recommend you put money into is Apple and Amazon. And they're both meant to be startups. So Mm. the focus on iPhone for the movie, I think is a product placement piece, right? Like Apple clearly sponsored or kicked in some bucks. But I do believe that they've moved up the timeline so that that stock market thing doesn't end up coming into play but it makes more sense if you think about like oh that's why the phones are such a novelty because they are literally brand new like getting a phone would be a big deal it's not a brand new iphone that's the big deal right yeah but yeah you're right the film has a very 50s 80s vibe to it which does not match because it's meant to be 93 when we start and then we jump ahead into the 2000s It's wild. (laughs) But then you Mm -hmm. also have producers Jason Blum and Ryan Murphy, which I think especially that last part just like gives us Mm -hmm. a a particular kind of sheen to it. And then you also have a composer, Javier Navarrete, who did Pan's Labyrinth and Wrath of the Titans and Antlers. So like you have all of these very disparate things coming together for this movie. And I think that might be why it feels a little disjointed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they're not starting with the strongest of source material. In truth, I'm a little surprised that someone even decided to option this. I know the king is still an incredibly hot commodity. Like in the time since we stopped covering Lizzie's story to the period now, we've only had one adaptation of King's work, which is the Firestarter movie that debuted on Peacock. But I think they've announced probably five or six new adaptations that are going to be coming down the pike. So it makes sense that they would say, oh, you know, let's do more King. But this doesn't feel like a great property to go with. And then, yeah, they just assembled this kind of random group, like a (laughs) hodgepodge of talent to say, well, let's come together and try to make something out of this and none of it quite works no it doesn't unfortunately and i i i I feel bad that i'm kind of like just constantly shitting on this movie however (laughs) the book aspect of it really confused me too okay so we get all these conversations between craig and mr harrigan where craig Mm -hmm. is reading these books and i made a note of all these books because whenever a book shows up in some kind of film or any kind of adaptation you know that there should probably be some kind of resonance to the story and i guess you mm-hmm. could probably pull a little bit from it because we have lady chatterley's lover which is about class mind and body and search for integrity and wholeness which is kind of the journey that craig i guess kind of goes on a little bit yeah. a little bit there's the heart of darkness which is about power dynamics and morality 
Mm-hmm. Okay. That one makes most sense. And it gets that sort of end credit piece where Craig has learned about the horror. The horror, the horror. The horror. Yes. There's They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Which gives the discussion between the two of them where Craig see, thinks, as because it's it's the kind of the, the joining uh, literature that brings from him from being like the young Craig to mm-hmm. being the slightly older Craig, where he says, <laughs> I finally think I understand this story where if horses can be in pain, they can be put out of their misery. Why can't humans be afforded the same gift? And Mr. Mm-hmm. Erickson says the gift of death to never more feel pain or fret or worry. And I think you can probably see kind of a connection there with the story of like, but he t- twists it on his head because I, I, he's not really putting people out of their misery. He's punishing no. them for... He's fully killing them on a whim. And then, yeah, there's the moment at the end, which to me is definitely the weakest part of this entire enterprise where we have Craig go to Mr. Harrigan's grave. He's been putting off going the entire time because he doesn't want to see his own mother's gravestone. But he has this whole thing where he's like, oh, I've deciphered the random text that you've been sending me throughout the film. And I think it means that I'm either hurting you. So I'm sorry if that's the case or I'm hurting myself or something else. And you're just like, is that the takeaway and then we get this horrible thing where he throws the cell phone into the lake and says oh i don't want to be buried with anything in my pockets and our relationship to our phones is unhealthy and i was like that's the takeaway (laughs) that's awful (laughs) and you're right it doesn't connect back in a convincing fashion to any of these books that he's been reading so to clarify in the short story Mr. Harrigan ushers him into adulthood by exposing him to texts that children typically don't read. So like, as you mentioned, that transition point where it's kind of like, oh, I finally understand the things that I'm reading now. That feels closer in theme or character development to what is happening in the book where it's like, you know, oh, you shouldn't have a 10 or a 12 year old reading Lady Chatterley's Lover, even if they don't fully (laughs) understand the nuance of it. And the idea is like Mr. Harrigan isn't afraid to tell Craig the truth about what real life is like. But I don't think that the movie does a great job of handling that. And then you're right. Most of these texts don't ultimately feel important to the story with that we're telling. And I think the problem is, is that the movie seems to want to focus on them so much to the point that we mm-hmm. get the title superimposed on the screen as if like it's supposed to be like some, oh, I get it now. Mm-hmm. But here's here's where I have to also confess something. As an English major and a person that studied English, I have not read any of these books that he talks oh, really? about. <laughs> you had to go off and do a little homework, did you? <laughs> I was I did. I was like I I know kind of what they're about, but and I've I know of them, but I've never except for um The Tale of Two Cities, which is the book that creepily Craig reads while he's sitting in front of the man's dead body, which I thought was a little weird. But other mm-hmm. than that one, I have not read Crime and Punishment, I've not read The Jungle or any of these other three that are are mentioned. Mm. <laughs> yes, I've read Heart of Darkness and Crime and Punishment, and they're both good. They're they're lengthy, they're meaty, they're very deep thematically, which again, just to me reinforces how ironic it is that these are the texts we're highlighting in this very <laughs> slight, very shallow, very surface level, not quite horror film. <laughs> not quite horror film. I was really surprised and very sad that we spend an hour getting to the supernatural points and then they they feel themselves like just not... They're so undercooked, hey? Yeah. 
like visually they're not we don't get to see these attacks right so craig will make a phone call and then the next day a body turns up and we get to see the aftermath so we get to see the bodies where they sort of fallen so in the case of the bully he's in the exact same position as craig was left after the beating and he's got the the can of shoe polish that he was going to make craig eat if he didn't polish his shoes and you're like oh that's interesting but we don't actually get to see this attack and it's labeled a suicide and then with the drunk driver it's the exact same thing we get to see the aftermath after he's swallowed this bar of soap which as you mentioned is the same as what the teacher used to use and there's so little impact to that like it's as though it wants us to be scared that craig has this power he's controlling this avenging ghost and yet all we ever get to see is the aftermath and it's just like it's ho-hum bodies like i've seen worse on law and order <laughs> yeah same and i realize they're trying to keep a pg because this is pg-13 but mm-hmm. they could have i don't know if you wanted to like have a movie that is going to have at least some horror to it mm-hmm. maybe show a little bit of that horror right you yeah. know as opposed to like trying to i guess make it more like a a ambiguous ghost story because it's possible that he fell out and you know was was drunk and so that's why he died like it's possible i -hmm. don't think the other one is necessarily possible i don't think i don't think someone is going to willingly (laughs) get accidentally choke out a bar of soap no (laughs) after swallowing a bottle of shampoo to lubricate the throat like no Mm -mm. that's that's not that's that's not a thing Okay, so I have a question for you, Terry, and I'll admit I don't often like asking this because it just sounds like a prickly kind of dick thing to do. But you mentioned that the film is PG-13. We talked about how it feels like it's kind of straddling these two different worlds between wanting to be a bit of a horror film, but also this nostalgic kind of coming of age. Who do you think this movie is actually for? Like, who is the audience for this film? I wish I could answer that because I don't I don't think the average teenager is going to sit through this mm-hmm. beginning. Right. Cuz first of all it's it's a very it's slow. The first it's hour slow. of this movie is is slow. Well, yeah. uh, to be fair the la- the last 30 and 40 minutes of the movie is also kind of slow. The mm-hmm. movie's very slow. <laughs> Terry's like there's a 10 minute bit in the middle somewhere that's kind of good but most of it's slow. Yeah. If I was a 13-year-old and I was like, ooh, I'm going to go see this latest Stephen King mm-hmm. movie, I think I'd be very disappointed because yeah. it's not being sold as like a stand-by-me or one mm-hmm. of his more grounded stories, if that makes yeah. sense. And as a horror fan, I'm just like, this is not Mm-mm. doing it for me. No. <laughs> in a world, in a year particularly, where we've had such great horror oh, films, Yes, this is just not... This is even remotely it. scratching it. No, this is like an annoying mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't think it's memorable enough. And I, I will say, I don't think that the source material benefits from being adapted. Like, if I had have just read this and not known that it was being adapted, I wouldn't have said, oh, this is screaming for a Netflix adaptation, make it 140 <laughs> minutes. No, I... Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I feel like this might appeal to people who have read the story and enjoyed it, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it just doesn't feel like it earns the runtime. It doesn't feel like there's enough substance here to merit turning into a film to the point where I'm just like, 
I don't understand this creative decision in general. Yeah, I, I mean, you just brought up an interesting point because I do think there are times where there have been adaptations that I think are more focused on the reader mm -hmm. where there's a lot of internal monologue, a lot of right. internal dialogue. And so if a person is a huge fan of it, they go into the movie and they'll have a different appreciation for it because they have that sort of yes. background source material to base it off of. And maybe that's the case here, but it doesn't sound like it from, from even you who, I mean, you said you read what three fourths of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's strange. So I'm, I'm, spoiling things a little bit but there's going to be an upcoming episode that i did with jen adams and gina radcliffe for white ladies in crisis where we talked about dolores claiborne and gerald's game like those are full-on novels we should acknowledge yes but they are incredibly interior minded right like, yes it's not a ton of action it's stories being relayed to other people or being experienced inside the character's minds so like we've seen good adaptations of either slight or tricky or very like interior minded stories by king so we know that they can be done well and yet something like this i think exposes the folly that people have of just thinking oh well it's king we can make an adaptation of this because everybody adapts king all the time yeah i think you bring up a good point too uh with dolores claiborne now it's been a while since i've either read or seen the adaptation but mm -hmm. I remember really loving both the book and uh -huh. the film adaptation. And in a lot of ways, I think you can find some similarities here where here we have kind of the character of Craig explaining his life story to us in a way that mm -hmm. feels very similar to the way that Dolores Claiborne in that book is at least relaying a story. And so there's, right. there's a connection there, but you're right. There's two ways to do this kind of story, and there's the good way, which is Dolores Claiborne, and there's this mm -hmm. way, which feels very uh, <laughs> toothless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. At the end of the day, I'm not unhappy that we watched this because it meant that I got to have a conversation with you, and that's always delightful, and particularly on this in you know sort of limited series whenever we feel like doing a podcast. It was fun to bring back yeah. Nightmares and Dreamscapes, but overall... I just can't imagine anybody's going to even be talking about this movie in about five weeks. No, this is definitely one of those Netflix things that comes and goes. And mm -hmm. people are like, do you remember that adaptation? Because yeah. <laughs> there's just uh, there's nothing that is going to. This isn't Gerald's game. I'm not going to come back and revisit this one. Mm -mm. No, even, you know, with the star power of someone who's on the rise, like Jaden Martell, who's fine he just doesn't have anything to do That's and then the obviously part. donald sutherland i think for you and i is probably a bigger draw mm -hmm. and he's delightful in his sort of twinkly eyed slightly moist uh <laughs> performance <laughs> but again mr harrigan really doesn't get much to do either he's just kind of that sage wisdom giver and then he's gone before the film is even halfway through it would have been more interesting if they had dug a little bit more into his kind of backstory, I think, mm -hmm. because like he's presented, yes, as a sort of aloof billionaire. And, you know, you hear whispers about him kind of being ruthless. But uh, outside of the gardener that he fires, who then drives his car into a shed and kills himself, like you don't mm -hmm. really see any of that darkness. No. And I think it would be an interesting thing of of exploring a character study between the man that you, th you think you know, and then the the more complicated individual behind that. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I just I don't think this film is interested in exploring that dynamic. Yeah, strangely, it's too reverent to the source material, which is also, I mean, it, it kind of works as a novella because it's only about 70 pages. But mm-hmm. when you have to stretch that out to a film, but you still want to do the story of the novella, I think that's when you really start to hit problems like people, they need to be comfortable moving away from source materials, particularly when they're making an adaptation, because what works on the page doesn't always or often work on screen right and here i just think it's like you needed to move away from this source material because the most interesting story is not the one that you ultimately told exactly yeah exactly well boo (laughs) um yeah so that was mr harrigan's phone i don't think either one of us really recommends it but if you listen to this congratulations (laughs) (laughs) Terry, if people had a different reading or if they want to talk to you a little bit more about the visual aesthetic and whether they think it's more 50s than 80s or vice versa, how would they get a hold of you? Uh, you would find me by going on Twitter at Gaily Dreadful. And Joe, if people wanted to talk to you, to tell you bad jokes about screenwriters <laughs> and starlets, where would they find you? Oh my gosh, well, it's going to have to be better than what this movie is giving us. But uh, yes, you can reach me at Bisto on my remote. And that's the letter B. So folks, the fun of this podcast is that we never really know when or if we'll come back. So uh, we can't tell you what we're going to be covering next on Nightmares and Dreamscapes. But we will thank the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. And of course, all of the other ones on the network. But yeah, um, Maybe I'd like to hear from folks. Maybe this is how we'll end it, Terry. If folks have read If It Bleeds, which of the other stories would they most like to see get adapted and why? Yeah, I I would like to hear that, actually. Okay. Well, perhaps with that, we'll close off this episode. So until the next time we maybe come back together for another Stephen King adaptation, we can close out... The Nightmares and Dreamscapes. The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.